Uh, hey, Tom. I guess I'm next. Okay. Uh, I had uh, two questions about other PMRs. So my first question is, why do IUOCs choose to incarnate into uh, de-evolving reality frames? So in previous talk, you've, you've explained that there are many other PMR frames behind, besides the one we are currently living in, some of which mm -hmm. are very high energy and are on a negative path, path towards mm -hmm. de-evolution. Uh, I understand that the system would still want to keep these reality frames around as long as they still have potential to turn around into a more positive direction. But what I don't understand is why would beings choose to incarnate into such a reality frame where they are likely to increase their entropy rather than decrease it? I believe you said that we all choose to incarnate into a PMR based on our free will. So why would mm -hmm. we choose by free will to have an experience packet that's not optimal for our evolution and even likely to decrease our quality of consciousness. Well, why would we do that? Because we just don't understand the game. We're not, um, we wouldn't be evolved enough to really understand that this is a game of consciousness evolution. And, uh, you know, most people don't have that idea. A few people have that idea that that's the way it is, but they're the exception. Most people just come and go because that's what they do. The average person walking around in, in this in this virtual reality doesn't have the idea that they are evolving the quality of consciousness. Now, when they die in our system, somebody will try to help you out, maybe give you some advice. But your free will dominates. So let's say that when somebody says, well, you know, uh, you had a little trouble there. You were always getting angry, flying off the handle and, you know, killing people or something. It was a bad idea. And if you're not very grown up, you'll say, yeah, so, so what? And they'll say, well, you know, you know, you want to go back and do it again? And they'll say, sure, it was fun. You see, they don't know. They don't really know what's going on or the game they're in or why they're there. They haven't reached that level of sophistication. So the ones that are really negative and very low quality, in their mind, that's all there is, basically. They're either having fun or they think, next time, I'll, next time I'm going to win. <laughs> okay, I didn't win that last time. That was really awful. You know, I spent all my all my life in a, behind bards or, or in, a, in, in a hole someplace. But next time, I'm going to get those guys. You know, next time, I'm going to be the winner. Um, so it's the people in that, if in, the, if in their, um, you know, when they die and they, and they get in their, their uh, transition frame, there really isn't much that you can tell them They'll help them see a bigger picture. Here, some people get that talk that helps them see a bigger picture, but they're the ones that have been around enough that they've gotten a low enough entropy and a high enough quality that they can have that discussion. But a lot of people don't. Even the people in our virtual reality that aren't nearly so bad as that, they still often don't have any understanding or any talk, even in the transition, about the fact that this is consciousness evolution game. They're not ready for that concept. If you told them that, it'd be, huh? A what? 
It wouldn't, it wouldn't compute. They're not there at that point. So it's, you know, you can't, you can't talk about concepts that are not in your reality kind of thing. So even though they are individuated units of consciousness and even though they're supposed to be evolving, they haven't yet got to a point that you can have a conversation about that. And that's just where they, where they are. When they evolve enough to where you can have that conversation, then you can actually talk about it and they can start making choices to make that evolution more efficient. But let's say, go ahead. That always, that almost makes it sound like the system would prefer them to not incarnate into those reality frames. Would that be correct? Well, in a way, you can, you would think that it is maybe a waste of resources to compute that because they're not being very functional. But the system is very patient and it allows that experiment to take place to see where it'll go, what'll happen. And I think that in all the places I've been that have been have been horrible, and most of them are not so horrible, but one in particular you've heard me t- mention that was just a really, really negative place, there was an underground, if you were, or you know, the rebel force uh, in movie parlance that was trying to be positive and saw that caring was the right thing. So there was an underground that was trying to develop that and trying to grow and expand that idea. And you had the the negative side that had gotten so negative that it was beginning to get more and more obvious that it wasn't working. You know, it's not, none of it was a good idea. Everybody was disgruntled. Nobody was actually too happy about anything. It was such a, such a negative rat race that so I think the system just lets that go to see what happens what happens like that does it just de, you know do evolve down to the bottom and just stay there forever or does it find its way back up and if it finds its way back up is evolution then much faster because they've got all this background of what they don't want to be do they then do they then evolve you know Four or five times, you know, the rate that say we evolve because they have a much stronger uh, feedback. I don't know, but the system was there and it was persisting. There was an underground that was positive, that was growing. It wasn't large. It was a small, relatively small movement, but one that was one that was growing. So I don't know how that works out. And I suspect if it works out just badly, let's say that that uh, small group of positiveness just continually gets smashed and doesn't, the, the thing never turns around. It just stays at the bottom like that all the time. And the system can see, oh, the probability of it turning around is very, very low. My guess is it would terminate it because there wouldn't be any point in wasting resources there. But I think as long as there's potential for it to grow, for it to hit bottom, and people to realize that there is better ways of doing things, then it'll, the system will let it run until it's run itself into the ground entirely. 
So I think there was still some potential there. But if it got to the point that there was now potential, or even not a zero, but, you know, 10 to the minus 10 that this thing's going to turn around, we've given it lots and lots of opportunity and just doesn't seem to do that, then I think the plug would be pulled on that particular VR. And those people would have to be very gradually introduced into other game, games that were a lot more positive and put in positions where um, they had very, what, uh, simple and non-challenging lives for a while till they could get used to the not being so aggressive and, and negative, put them in, in positions of, of simple choices for a while. So they'd be reintegrated into other other systems all right yeah that's uh that's interesting and that's actually a nice bridge to my next question um which is uh, to what extent does consciousness evolution gained in one reality frame carry over to other reality frames so let's say that an ioc incarnates many thousands of times in this pmr and becomes a very good player so to speak like a, a buddha to what extent will the quality and experience that it has gained in PMR carry over to other reality frames? So if this IOC chooses to incarnate into a new and entirely different reality frame, would it be like starting all over again for that being? Or would, mo would most of the lessons that that being has learned in this PMR still be useful in that other reality frame? Almost all of the lessons, if we're talking about quality, quality of consciousness, all of the quality earned would be useful. Consciousness is playing the same game everywhere. So all of that would be useful. What wouldn't be useful would be all the things you've learned about how to what interact, uh, culture, um, you know, details. You know, the, the, the facts of this virtual reality wouldn't necessarily be facts in some other virtual reality. Cultures and interactions could be very different. So you'd have all of that learning to do. But if you were high quality here, you'd be high quality there. So Buddha would still be a Buddha in both, in both places because he understood the nature of reality. So that would, that would work very well. But here he knew how to ride a horse and there, there may no, there may not be any creatures such as horses. He may have to learn some other way to get around. So he'd have to, you know, he'd have to learn new ways of, of interacting and doing things, but the quality would still work as well because that's the, that's the nature of it. Now he may go to a place that was particularly, uh, low quality of consciousness or even maybe a very high quality of consciousness, but that wouldn't matter. He would, he would be the way he was. It's just like, Every time you incarnate, you take with you the quality you've earned. And that's true no matter what reality frame you incarnate in. You take the quality you've learned up to that point, And all those reality frames are trying to evolve the quality of their consciousness. So if you were, you know, so your relative status might change, you know, but your, where you, where you fit into that wouldn't. So if you had somebody here who, because let's say here we have a fairly low quality of consciousness, somebody who was average might go to another one where they were kind of the high quality, they were high end, or maybe a different one, and they'd be even lower in their relationship to the other people there. So you, your relationship, you know, to the others may change. 
but your quality would still stay the same. Do you see um, a lot of benefit in having experience in multiple different reality frames in the same way that there can be a lot of benefit of experiencing like the male perspective and the female perspective in this PMR? Not as much because most of the facts of PMRs aren't that relevant. What's really relevant to your growth is the interaction and relationship and connection with other people. That's the, that's the biggie. The relationship to the, to the stuff, you know, to the rocks and trees and to the water and, you know, to the universe and to the solar system and all of that, uh, the facts of, of the virtual reality really aren't that big an issue. So it, relationships, as, as cultures differ, there might be some value there. Like there is value, say, being in different cultures just because they have different rules and the different rules then create different choices. So there would be some advantage, advantage in cultural differences, but I don't think those are as varied as, you know, the physical stuff is varied, is varied more. And that's because the cultures grow up around people and relationship. <laughs> they grow up around interactions of conscious with consciousness. So most of the cultures are not going to be hugely different other than details. Like here, we have different cultures. You can imagine, you know, some very different cultures, but mostly those cultures have similar ideals. Mostly they understand good versus bad, helpful versus unhelpful. Um, Within each culture, being helpful is good, not being helpful, you know, whatever helpful means. In one culture, being helpful might mean finding firewood. And another culture, being helpful might be getting a PhD in, you know, brain surgery. But doing things that are considered good are still considered good. Any culture you go into, there's how to act that's good and you evolve and how to make choices that are that you don't, you know, you're, you're part of the problem. So I think that would probably be pretty consistent. At least I'm thinking of the very virtual realities. I, I've been there where, the, where everything was different physically, so to speak. The virtual reality had evolved very differently. So beings didn't look like human beings. They didn't have heads and shoulders and arms and legs. They didn't function that way. It was just very different in that sense. But you still had the good versus evil theme going on just like we have here throughout the whole thing. It was just done in a different different format. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Okay, we have a question from Giuseppe today. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. Um, I just um, finished reading the um, My Big Toe books uh, some months ago, and I'm trying to change my way of being. And I had like a Copernical <laughs> revolution in my in my soul, and I want to see if if I understand um, the process of of taking um, decisions. So my question is going to be about it. I'm going to read it. Um, 
I would like to know a little bit more about the conscious decision-making process and personal evolution in MBT. Let's say I have a social problem X. Then, from my current conscious level, I came up with three responses, A, B, C. That would be my decision space. So, before I take the choice, I must have a sincere and fearless intent to become loved. That means become part of the solution, being caring and compassionate to others. So from my three choices, I pick up one, according to my current wisdom, the low entropy choice, that would be. And then if I did it correctly, I will be taking the path of consciousness evolution. Is that correct? Or is it more like that? Um, no matter which choice you take, you're still part of the consciousness evolution process. If you make the choice that is the, the low end, the, what you think is a low entropy choice, you'll do that. You know, what was it? One, two, three, A, B, and C. Yeah. Well, you'll do that one and then you have to evaluate it. After you've done it, you have to say, well, how did that turn out? Was that really the low entropy choice? You know, what was the downside of that? You know, who got hurt? Who, who won, who lost, you know, what was the, what was the outcome of that choice relative to my other choices? And you will learn something. Now, let's say you did pick the best choice and everything works out great and everybody's happy. Nobody loses. Everybody's having a good time. So you'd look at that and you'd say, well, that would work. That worked out pretty good. And you might have your mind go back over the choice B and choice C and, and see where, where that, how that was different. You might think about that. But anyway, you spend some time considering your choice and how did it work out and you learn. So let's say that B was your next best choice and you took that instead of A because you thought B was going to be the best choice. From your assessment, B was going to be the best choice. So you do that, but you find out some people got hurt and you got along all right, but some other people didn't do so well because of that choice. So you look at that and you think, well, I could have done that better. You know, there was other choices I could have made. And you'll learn something. And you'd have thought, well, how could I have done it better? Oh, okay. I didn't need to come in and, you know, cause these troubles for other people. I could have, I could have come in and done just as well, but not caused the trouble for other people. And let's say that you thought the one that's the worst choice, C, was the best choice. You say, ah, C is the best choice. That's what I should do. And you go in and you do that. And you don't do so well. It hurts you. It hurts a lot of other people. Just turns out badly. So then you look at it and you do the same thing. Well, something went wrong here. Could I have done this better? And you think about it and you try to learn. So you don't always learn. Sometimes you do see and you say, I can't think of anything any better. I don't know how else I could have done it. This didn't work out too well. I didn't like the outcome, but that's life. Well, you'll get another opportunity to learn that same lesson later. You know, that's not your last opportunity to learn it. So the whole point is you do the best you can, make the best choice you can, and then you assess it and try to learn from it. And every time you see something in your life where you or somebody else gets hurt because of your choices, you stop and you reassess. And you say, how could I have done that differently? How could this have come out some other way? And generally, you can 
take it back to, well, I, I could, I, it was this choice. When I made that choice, that's what cemented it into the problem. Why did I make that choice? Well, I made that choice because I was feeling very uh, insecure. And it was my insecurities has, has led me to, to make that choice. So you learn from all of them. So it doesn't matter so much what choice you make as it matters that you try to make your best choice and you learn from however it works out. Perfect. I, I have another question. I don't know if, if I can ask it now or later or other day. Is, is it okay? Go ahead. Very much. I am new to the meditation. I mean, I'm trying, uh, I'm being new in the meditation from the My Big Toe. And um, I, I try to go to the point of consciousness. I've been point of consciousness like three times. But then I was reading or listening to your, your video. I know that you said that, you know, there are some foods that are not good for, for meditation, like sugar, coffee, and some other things. And then when I, 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 I read that and I saw myself uh, eating a little bit of sugar, I, 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 I couldn't get any more to point of consciousness. So I, I don't know if I have to like never eat again a piece of chocolate or a glass of wine or to get a good in meditation. I don't know if you understand my question. Yeah. Do what works for you. If you were doing fine with your meditation, then work with that for a while. You're just new. You're just starting down this path. Don't worry too much about optimizing it just yet. First, you need to just experience it and get familiar with it. And then you can begin to optimize it. If you try to optimize too soon, it's impossible because you don't have enough information to enable you to judge which ways are best. Was it better? So see, if you just look at your experience, you didn't do anything particularly with your diet. You ate sugar, you drank coffee, you did whatever you did, and you were meditating, and it was successful. And then you said, oh, no, I shouldn't be eating this sugar and drinking this caffeine. So you stopped, and then your meditation wasn't any good anymore. Well, is that because suddenly the sugar and the, and the caffeine ruined your meditation? Probably not. That was because you felt like you were doing something suboptimal. Sub you felt like you weren't doing it right. And because you felt like you weren't doing it right is probably why your meditation didn't work so well anymore. So in the beginning, just do whatever works. Just do it. You don't have to worry so much about your diet. You don't have to worry about much of anything. Just do it. Now, after you've been doing it for six months or a year and you really have a sense of what it's like and what it feels like and how easy it is to get there and that now you can hold that state for long periods of time. Now, if you want to try to optimize by changing your diet, now you could actually have a judgment. You could change your diet for a week or two weeks or a month, two months, and see how that changes the meditation because now your meditation is a stable thing. You've been doing it, say, for six months or a year, and it's very stable. You know exactly how it feels and exactly where you know where you get to. Now you can make a judgment. Is it better or worse because you've changed a variable? You've changed the diet variable, say. And if you change the diet variable, let's say you give up sugar and your meditation's worse, well, then go back to eating your sugar again. This is all trial and error. 
you know, figure it out as you go. So there's no hard and fast rules. For most people, most of the time, sugar kind of is unsettling. It's It gives you, it creates chaos, if you will. It creates things in your in your mind that are, you know, I can't get my hand here, that are kind of wavy and lumpy. Your glucose levels are, are changing all the time. So your biochemistry is in flux, and that's not helpful. So most people, sugar and caffeine are not helpful to a good meditation. But that doesn't mean you can't learn to meditate and still eat sugar and caffeine. Bob Monroe was a junk food junkie. He uh, he loved cookies and pretzels and potato chips and donuts. And anybody who's conscious about diet will tell you it's horrible and you shouldn't eat it. He ate all of that stuff. And it didn't bother him at all. He could just, you know, go right through that. But that's because he was so accomplished at what he did that though this stuff made it, harder for him to do it, he hardly noticed the harder because he was already so good at it. You know, the the bit harder that it made it was not significant to how good he already was at it. But for beginners who aren't very good at it, these distractions and other things tend to be a little more of a problem. But don't do it on day one, you know, not not until you've got something really steady that you can compare it to. Otherwise, you won't know whether it help you or hurt you. So just do whatever works. Be comfortable. Have fun. And after you've been done it for a while and you really feel solid with it, then's the time to start experimenting. And experiment with all sorts of things. And the things that make it better, Well, do more of those. The things that make it worse, do less of those. Whatever those things are. You know, maybe you've got, you know, maybe you're a a 20 sigma brain chemistry or something. You know, you're, you're way out there on the tail of the curve and you're not like everybody else. And maybe when you eat a Snickers bar, it actually settles your mind down. You know, who knows? Individuals are individuals. You can't necessarily make a statement and say that goes for all humanity. You know, it's not like that. So just do your own experiments and see how it works for you. Most people will find that the sugar and the caffeine and the nicotine and so on are a are problem with their consciousness. But it doesn't mean everyone will. So it's an experimental science. Figure it out for yourself as you go. That's the best way. Thank you very much. All right, Frank, thank you for joining us today. Please go ahead with your question. Hi, all. Thanks. Uh, hi, Tom. Um, I I had two questions, but I'm happy to drop one because I would actually have a follow-up question to what Giuseppe just asked because, Tom, you confused me a bit now with your answer um, where you replied um, about, um, on, the, um, on how you grow because you seem to put a lot of emphasis on the intellectual learning process and evaluation. Um, whereas I thought it's all about the intent. So when Giuseppe said, you know, he had three choices to make and he made the best possible mm-hmm. choice, 
then according to my understanding so far, it would mean that, you know, as long as you have, have a loving, caring intent and you make the best choice that you're aware of, this is how you grow. But you placed a lot of, you know, in, on, on the intellectual assessment. And I remember that once you said um, when people go to the transition, they have completed an experience packet and then they have a life review. I remember you saying something. Yeah, but that's more intellectual analysis. It's not so. So I ca can you just clarify what's really now more important? The, um, the assessment or the or the intent? You are thinking. Uh, in the either or realm of being intuitive or being intellectual, and those two interfere with each other. Eventually, that's not the case. They just work really well together. You need both. So when you're going to make your choice, you need your intellect to come in and help assess how is this going to affect people? You know, this is some analysis you can do. All right, my choice is to do this. And if I do, well, that's going to hurt that and hurt that and make this other person really angry. But it's going to do help this and help that. So you go through all these assessments and you can do that intellectually and you can do that intuitively. You should do both. You shouldn't just do one or the other. You should do both. And you actually do both kind of together. You don't, you, you can do one and then do the other, but you do both. So you need the intellect to make those, uh, to do that analysis, to make the assessment. But you need the aware, you know, and that's what you should call awareness. You come in with an awareness of how it's going to affect others. Well, that awareness, one component of that is an intellectual awareness. The other component is an intuitive awareness. But you need both of those to work together because there's some things that the intellect can do better than the intuition as far as seeing connections between things and whatever. Sometimes it has a better grasp of, well, it does analysis. That's what it does. You know, it's good at analysis. Uh, whereas the intuition tends to just get answers. Chunk, you know, you've just so got, would... you've just got the answer, but you don't really have the process. So you don't really have the understanding of why it should be this way. You just have the intuitive do it this way. All right, so you have that intuition, and you could just do it that way, but it's good to think about it and find out why. What is it? What are the key points, so that I understand better what's going on? You know, from the intellect. So you weigh the intuitive side, you weigh the intellectual side, you put them together, and you have to say, well, that intellect doesn't have all the facts that the intuitive has, so it's doing analysis based on these reasons, and that intuition. Sometimes it doesn't work real well because I've got ego and I've got fear and I've got beliefs that make my intuition a little squirrely sometimes. And I end up getting answers that I'd like as opposed to the answers that are real or, you know, so the intuition isn't like perfect either. So you look at both of them and come up with a choice, not just one or the other. They both have their strong points and they both have their weak points that mm. the, the weak point of the intuition is that your frame of mind and the attitude that you come at it right at that time has quite a bit to do with the result that you're going to get. 
I mean, I mean, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So it's not yeah, only yeah. the intent, but also, I mean, you need to really think uh, what, what you're creating. And uh, exactly. so the way I would see it when you afterwards, you see what, what you've actually done and what, what has resulted from what you did. That also widens your decision space for next time, right? Because then you've got, exactly. um, if you get into a similar situation, then you know, ah, yeah, okay, now I can actually have, a, have option D and maybe next one, the best choice is option D and that's how you broaden your decision exactly. space and maybe uh, can also grow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. That's the way it works. And the neat thing about this is that when you realize that it's not critical so much what choice you make, I mean, you need to make your best choice, but you can learn from any of the choices. And what's most important in this process is that you learn. You know, you'll get to where you want to go if you're learning. So it takes the, it takes some of the, uh, what stress out of making the choice to know that, okay, if it isn't really the best choice, maybe it's the third best choice. That's all right. I'll learn something and my next choice will be better. Because when you say make your best choice, often you don't know what that is. You don't have an entropy, a future entropy meter that you can dial up the, you know, the entropy that you're going to create and say, ah, this got us, you know, entropy of, you know, 69.5 and this had an entropy of only 53.2, then I'll do this one. You don't have that because you don't know all the choices that other people are going to make relative to your choice that are going to make a difference about the things, the way the thing settles out. So you only can look at it from your perspective. But once you make your choice, your choice is going to affect the choices that other people make. That it's hard for you to take that into consideration, those choices that other people are going to make because of your choice. So we're generally, we have a lot of uncertainty about our choices. I narrow it down. Okay, here's 20 possible choices. And I narrowed it down to three or four that look like they could be pretty good. You know, that's typical where you're, where you're at, that kind of a situation. And now, what does my intellect say? If it does all of its analysis with everything that it understands, you know, it, it applies logic to the situation. Now, what's my intuition say? You know, what, where do I feel that, you know, this is going to go? And where do I, where do I see people? I can even do a little excursion down the probable future database to see you know, how things fall out in various directions, I'm not sure of. So I can do that. And then I can take that data gained by my intuitive side and operate with my intellect on it. You see, it's, it's all part of one thing. And then you make your best choice. Say, well, okay, it's going to be one of these four. I'll just pick that one. And now you have to pay attention and try to assess as you go along. How did that work out? And did the things you worried about, were they really problems? Or did the problems mostly come from something you never even saw coming? Things that you didn't worry about. And how would you see those kinds of things and, and, and think that they were coming? Well, you'd probably have to consider other people more. You know, and what their reactions might be to your choices. So okay, it's just a learning process. Uh, thank you. That clarifies that. So if I may, I just ask one of my two questions very briefly so that we can also move on. Um, so the question was, does an IUOC um, actually ex uh, feel um, fear, fear or is, is high entropy or the low quality of consciousness of an IUOC actually expressed and felt by the IUOC as 
fear even outside of a PMR context. So what, when it's uh, no, no longer locked into a virtual reality. In other words, when we start a new experience packet, do we bring actual specific fears with us or do we only bring with us a potential or a likelihood to develop fears? We mostly, fears? we mostly bring a potential and a likelihood, nothing specific. Now, that's most of the time. Some of the time, if a, if a fear is very, very strong and very, very specific, you know, um, well, I don't know what that might be, but something that was, that was very clear, like a phobia of some sort, you know, a, a very strong, very specific thing, then that idea may actually get stuck in the, in the uh, IUOC. It may have that phobia there, but mostly that's not the case. It's just general, general quality, uh, stuff that's not too specific and it's not really seen as a fear of a certain thing. But it, it can be that can, that can go with you, but it's rare. Okay. For the most part, it doesn't because your fears tend to be tied up with things that happen here. Mm. They're tied up with, with this space and with other, other avatars. You know, they're so not the really. Yeah, the fear of not being good enough. I mean, it needs our cultural beliefs, what it, what it means to be good at something, good what is valuable, how do I count? And, exactly. and so without the VR context, you know, can an IUOC have a fear of not being good enough? Does that even make sense right. or? Right. Well, it doesn't really translate to anything. So most mm -hmm. of it doesn't come with you as a specific thing. It comes in only as a general, uh, um, say negative attitude towards self, perhaps, but mm. not not in any kind of specific way. Mm. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Frank. Gary, if you'd like to go ahead with your question, we are going to take this over just a few minutes because we had started late. So please go ahead. So th this is an easy one, Tom. <laughs> Uh, in book one of MBT, you described how two workers from NMPR came to seal the door on your experience in the non-physical. You pleaded with them to find out why, and you wrote, neither worker said anything, but they looked far away into the distance. Suddenly, they both give a, gave a loud gasp as if they were simultaneously surprised and shocked. The problem was that now they knew something that they were not supposed to know. They slowly turned toward me and started and stared with quizzical amazement for a few minutes. Saying nothing, they slammed the door hard and I was shut out. Uh, Tom, did you ever find out what those two workers saw? Has it already happened or do you think it is yet to happen in the future? Well, you know, I've been asked that question and the answer has changed from time to time, you know, because, uh, no, I didn't find out in a sense that somebody came to me later and said, Hey, do, do you want to know what those guys saw? I, that didn't happen, but I guess at it. And when I first was asked that question, I was saying something like, uh, um, that it had already happened. And it was over with. And then five or six years later, more thinking about it, I said, no, I don't think so. I think it's yet to come. So I don't know for sure, you know, because they don't tell me that sort of thing. It's 
You know how in organizations that are very secure, security minded, they say you have a need to know. You can't tell you something unless you, uh, even if you have a clearance, but you don't have a need to know, then you don't find out about it. Only people that have a need to know find out. And uh, that's the way it is in consciousness. Nobody tells you anything more than absolutely necessary for you to take the next step. Because if they did, you would start gaming the system. Oh, this is what they want me to do, you see. And now you do that because you think that that's what they wanted you to do. Whereas that's not really what they wanted you to do at all. That's just what your thought was when you tried to game the system. So they want you to just act out of who you are and be authentic and do what it is you're supposed to do that way, not because you think that this is a plan of some sort. You just have to be yourself and do it because that's who you are. Anything else is artificial. So I don't get told much of anything other than pointed in the right direction and given very general idea of what of what the direction's about and then I just stumble my way through it and figure it out as I go. That's kind of the way I have found it always. I've never gotten a lot of explicit instructions. All right, now now I want you to learn this, this, this and the other thing. That kind of instruction I've never had or that kind of help I don't get. I get, well, you need to, you know, you need to cross this boundary and, and blunder into this territory and do whatever you do when you get there sort of thing. And it then depends on me to do whatever I do. And sometimes I'll get nudges or sometimes I'll get, uh, <laughs> I might get a message. Wow, you really screwed that one up, didn't you? You know, and I'll think, oops, uh, how may I've done that differently. So sometimes you get, you'll get messages that'll help but nobody ever tells you how to do anything. You always have to figure that out for yourself because it has to be your free will choice. You know, and I, I got the same thing writing the books. You know, some people think it was like my writing my big toe is like taking dictation. You know, I you know, would just let the larger kinds of system dictate the book, but it's not like that. I was not told any of it. I was basically told to figure it out. And sometimes I'd get some intuition and sometimes I'd get some nudges and sometimes I'd be led maybe to some material that would help me put it in context, but I never was given any answers. Always just nudges, directions, and, you know, like the, like the coach does to the player, you know, they pats him on the rump, sends him into the playing field, and, you know, go do your best sort of a thing. So... No, I'm not sure exactly uh, what it was. I can think of several things it might have been. And most of them had to do with politics and the non-physical. Had nothing really to do so much with here as it did uh, politics. Hard feelings, good feelings, competition, good versus evil, all of that stuff going on in the non-physical as well as here in this virtual reality because that's just the nature of, of uh, consciousness developing with free will. And uh, that's what it was. So it doesn't really, you know, so I thought that at first. But then my life started to spend much more of my time in the physical, I mean in the non-physical than the physical. So then I was more of a non-physical player than a physical player. And the things I did and the energies and, and the work I did was almost all in the non-physical. 
rather than in the physical. And then I thought, oh, that must be it. But I don't know really what it was or what they saw. I have no idea. Probably never will know. So you, it's just they wanted to give me that idea that there was something to... there that I needed to pay attention to. Go ahead. So we don't. You don't think we're going to Go see ahead, Tom Campbell running for president? <laughs> no, I don't think you're going to see that. <laughs> that. I can't think of anything more that I'd that I'd rather not do than that. But in any case, no. So what was your other question? I'll, I'll try and read it quickly. It is a little long, but I'll try and get it through quickly. Um, I listened to your interview okay. with Laurie Houston about taking responsibility in dealing with the fear response to COVID-19. Uh, from a big picture MBT theory perspective, I think you gave excellent advice as always. Things happen, we get to deal with them, and it is our responsibility to deal with them positively if we want to grow up and let go of our fear. However, in the comments section below the video, some people felt that you were expressing a somewhat Pollyanna view of the world. And I guess you were expecting this and would perhaps say that their opinion was another expression of their fear. My question is more of a discussion topic plus one specific question revolving around this difference of perspective. In the video, you confirmed your understanding that we live in a world where there are people who have a great deal of power, which they wield both legally and illegally, for it is well known that power can corrupt, especially when vast sums of money are involved, and never more so than when the driving force is an extreme ideology. As Laurie acknowledged, it has been observed by many people that there appears to be an, an agenda unfolding in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic to restrict civil liberties under the guise of being for the greater good and by saying that the only way to bring about an end to social distancing and get back to something like normal is by the use of mandatory vaccinations for the entire population. This does not appear to be people just indulging their fear in conspiracy theory, as Bill Gates and Dr Fauci, in many interviews I have heard myself, have been openly calling for mandatory vaccinations. Whether their intent is good or bad is debatable point, but many highly qualified and experienced doctors and scientists around the world are doing their best to reveal the dangers of the ex ever-expanding vaccination schedules, which are already mandatory, for example, in California. However, their, vo their voices are being suppressed through censorship and intimidation, usually by lab labelling them as anti-vaxxers. This has become a term of ridicule in society in the same way as conspiracy theorist is used to shame people who try to reveal the truth by being whistleblowers. So after listening to your talk on Laurie's show, I have tried to look at this question with open-minded scepticism to come to a balanced view of the facts and arguments. And my observation at the moment is that the evidence points to a high probability that this aim of mandatory vaccination is likely to come to pass unless people object in very large numbers. In relatively recent history, we have witnessed the tyranny of forced medical intervention during the period of Nazi Germany. And now it is happening again right now as we sit here talking about it. I am sure the people of California would not have imagined that their right to say no would be taken away from them and that their children would be forced to have multiple vaccinations with no exemptions 
for personal, religious or even medical reasons. You have explained previously that MBT is not a pacifist theory, that sometimes the low entropy choice does not involve holding hands and singing Kumbaya, as your Pollyanna critics implied, but that it is right to stand up against violence or moral injustice when it is necessary. Those who oppose the principle of mandatory vaccines are not all necessarily fearful about their civil liberties. They accept that to a degree for the reasons you have mentioned about the need to apply rules in a social system. They are remaining calm and considered in their response, but they are nevertheless deeply concerned about the illogical process of having their healthy body injected with known toxins, which have had little or no long-term testing, which have been proven to repeatedly cause injury and death. So I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I would like to ask you a personal question, Tom. I know you are not a fearful person, but if an officer from the CDC or Bill Gates Foundation came knocking on your door saying, it's time for your mandatory coronavirus vaccination, Mr. Campbell, what would you do? You are so careful with what you put into your body in order to maintain your health and especially the clarity of your consciousness. Those are your good choices. And I am sure you are well aware of the many safety issues surrounding vaccines and the many thousands of lives they have ruined. So when somebody is intending to override your free will and your lifetime of good choices by sticking a needle into your arm purportedly for your own good and the greater good of all, Remaining positive feels almost irrelevant advice just at that moment. Is that not a situation where being fearless but passive is not an act of courage, but an act of stupidity? All this, although this scenario I am sorry, although this scenario uh, I am presenting to you is a theoretical possibility, for parents in California it is a daily reality. So at what point is it valid to recognise what is likely to come in the near future and take positive action by saying no before it is too late, as it is for the people in California? On Laurie's show, you mentioned all the good things that are happening as a result of this pandemic. But this expansion of mandatory vaccinations is surely not one of them and not the change in the world we are hoping for as an outcome of COVID-19. Uh, since I wrote this question down, you have addressed similar questions in the fireside chat addendum with Donna. So I would just like to add this. Sometimes, in spite of our best efforts to maintain a positive attitude, we are simply overrun by outside circumstances. I think that was the frustration being expressed by the people reacting to your discussion with Laurie, that if we do not recognise an approaching danger, that we may well become personally affected by it, and it seemed to me they were asking, when is it appropriate to show a real sense of urgency in an ever-narrowing window of opportunity, opportunity to do something positively effective other than just maintaining a positive attitude? Okay. Okay, that's it. That's a good, that's a good question. Not going to be a, a real uh, simple one to answer, but it's a good question. In general... What I tell people is that just what we've been discussing here, you look at your alternatives, you take your best choice, and then you see how that plays out. Okay? And that's how you make your choices. It's good to look ahead 
and look at things that might happen so that you can maybe offer some what can I say, resistance to the things that might happen, right? That's forward-looking, that you might do that. Uh, but you have to always make the assessment of all your choices, whether you're going to add to the entropy or take away from it, whether you're going to be part of the solution or part of the problem. So right now, as far as I know, there is no law in the books that forces me to take a COVID-19 shot or any other kind of shot. No laws at all. Now, there are laws on the books that required my children to have all their shots before they were allowed to attend public schools. Or they couldn't attend the public schools. So it was like... Um, don't go to public school or get your shots. Of course, if you don't go to public school, now you're neglectful as a parent and uh, you're in trouble. You need to educate them some other way. Okay, so faced with that, what, uh, 30, 30 years ago, 30-some years ago, um, my children got vaccinated 30-some years ago. 30-some years ago, there was no other... There was no other side of that argument. Vaccinations were just were the right thing to have, and it was it was good. Nobody was really complaining much thirty years ago about vaccinations, so they got into school just fine. So I did meet up with that rule about vaccinations and going to school, and my kids all got vaccinated when they were very young because that's just what was done, and that's what the pediatrician suggested, and he was the medical authority in charge, and I let him make those decisions okay so now time goes on and now there may be some uh conspiracy going on or theory and you notice when you're if you're listening to my thing with laurie i said it's not that there are no conspiracies there may be conspiracies but the point is things happen and you just get to deal with it and do the best you can and make your best choice period and you have to be smart about it, which means if you try to act, you know, ahead of time, trying to educate or trying to uh, make sure that people have a bigger picture, that's fine. That's good. But if you're real fearful about it, if it's a scary thing and you're very fearful and you make other people fearful and you come to conclusions that aren't necessarily true yet, we haven't seen that that law about everybody getting vaccinations against flu type things that hasn't happened. That discussion hasn't even taken place yet. When that discussion does take place, I'm sure there'll be lots of time for you to add your petition and, you know, your name to the bottom line and to call your Senator and to go out in the street and wave a flag and hold a sign. All that will be available then. But right now that isn't even on the agenda. It's not to a point where opposing it is is uh, really requires for action other than education. Make the point. Say, guys, is this something we want or is this something we don't? So build a consensus. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. You know, go start building the consensus, making people see bigger pictures. Great. Education is always fine. But that needs to be done in a positive way. Chicken Little running out, screaming that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, quick, everybody, you know, whatever, uh, take cover, is not that helpful. Discussion about 
whether or not vaccines being mandatory or not, whether is that a good thing or is that not and why? Well, that's a discussion that needs to be had. And you can, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people on both sides of that that are going to try to capture the minds of, you know, the other people still trying to make up their mind about it. And that's as it should be. And then the culture will do something. So let's say right now that to kind of work into your, into your argument and your question, let's say that that happens. People talk about it and they're not fearful. They're just trying to educate. And it's not about, oh no, you know, and it's not about, you know, fear, 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 but it's listen to this. This is an important issue. You folks need to think about this and the reasons why. And here's why I think it's a bad idea. So let's say all that got done, all the petitions were made, everybody signed, you know, this document and that, and all of them talked to their congressmen. And what the government decided to do was that everybody needs to be inoculated. And it's a requirement. Let's say that happens, just like it happened in Germany, as you say, that, uh, well, then it wasn't so much a, a, a vote of the, of the, well, probably was. The, the uh, legislature there was pretty much in Hitler's pocket at that time. So let's say they get that kind of vote. Now, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so they come to my door and they say, it's time for your inoculation. So I get to look at my choices. And my choices are, well, I got lots of choices. You always have lots of choices. Usually you don't have very many good choices, but you have lots of choices. So my choices are that I draw my trusty weapon and I blow them all away, right? That's one choice. Okay, now where does that lead? Does that lead to a lower entropy or a high entropy result in the long term? Oh, very high entropy result, long term. Not only for me, but for everybody associated and, you know, my friends, my family, uh, you know, the culture in general, it's a bad example, et cetera, et cetera. So bad idea. So I throw that choice out. Okay, so what can I do? Uh, wrestle them to the ground and make them promise that they're going to leave and won't come back. Uh, that's not very useful because, of course, that won't happen. Even if I was, uh, you know, a, a, a heavyweight uh, WWW champion, that's not likely that they just come with 10 times as many people next time and a dart gun. So that's not a good idea. Okay. Now I could just refuse and say go away and depends on what kind of authority they had. If they had the authority to come in and do it anyway, whether I refuse or not, well, then that would be one thing. Or if I refused, they would leave and put my name on a list of people who refused to cooperate. Well, then that would maybe be another choice. But let's say they have permission to just come in and force it. So two big burly guys grab hold of me, roll up my sleeve and give me a shot. What am I going to do? Would I would I make them break my arm first or, uh, you know, would I? Again, am I going to pull out my trusty weapon and blow them away? If that's what my culture that I live in has said, and I live in that culture, then basically I have to abide by the rules that my culture gives me. Now, I don't necessarily have to like it, and I can complain, and I can publish things on the web and do other things saying, here's what happened to me, and I don't like it because after I got that shot, I ended up, you know, with palsy or something else because of all the the nasty things that were in the shot. I can complain. I can advertise. But there's not that much I can do about it. So you have to look at the things that you can change 
like early on, education is good. You might make a change in the population if you raise the issue up. Everything that you can't change, you have to realize that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So when they come to the door, and I know they have the authority to give it to me whether I cooperate or not, I'm going to say, oh, I've been expecting you guys, and I'm going to roll up my sleeve and say, yeah, this arm, please. Because I know if I don't, they're just going to knock me down on the floor and do it anyway. So what's the point? You see? So you you don't have necessarily the choice you want. That's part of living in a society with rules. Now you have some other options. You can leave that society. Pack up your bags. Take the money out of your bank account and go someplace else to live where they don't have that rule. Okay, so that's an option is to leave. You don't like the rules? Go live someplace else. But that's a lot of trouble. You got a lot of investment here. And you don't want to do that because you got grandchildren here or you got some other kind of thing. Well, maybe take them all with you. Whatever. But you make your choices, then you do it, and then you you uh, look at it in, in arrears and say, was that a good choice? So that's all. I'm just saying the fear is the problem. To come at it with the idea that the sky's falling, awful things are happening. You know, go out and buy some guns, guys. They're going to give us, you know, they're going to give us shots. You go better have a shotgun, not just a rifle. You know, you're going to need that. A couple of grenades would be handy too. The fear, fear, fear thing about how awful it is and how negative it is and how unhappy we should be and how miserable and upset and angry and mad. All that's part of the problem. You got a bunch of angry people and these angry people are against vaccinations. What does it look like to the, to the rest of the, you know, to the rest of the country that's not angry? Geez, these anti-vaccine people are wackos. Look at them. They're ranting and raving, you know, foaming at the mouth. They're just, act ridiculous. So it makes that cause less. What you do is you help your enemy there. The cause isn't taken seriously because they're a bunch of shouting, angry people. Nobody listens to shouting, angry people. Everybody writes them off as a mob. Now, if the people are not shouting and angry, if they're making their case intelligently, they're bringing out things that are facts, they're checking facts, not just saying stuff because it sounds good, and those facts can be checked by people who aren't angry, you see, then maybe people will listen. They'll be part of the solution. But the angry people, when they say, oh, and this is a fact, and they're angry, well, nobody gives that fact any, any credence. That guy's angry. He's going to say anything that, you know, that makes him feel good. So when you're angry, anything you say is useless. Nobody's going to listen to you. You're going to make up anything because you've got – an investment in an answer. You're not an impartial person that's trying to weigh the pros and cons and point to facts. You're an angry person that's got a, you know, that's got a right and a wrong, and you're gonna, it's your way or no way. It's your way or wrong. Nobody's gonna listen to that. So that's what I say about the fear. If you get upset and you're angry and you're fearful, you're part of the problem, and you're actually hurting the side that you're that you're trying to support. Because the anger makes your support less. And if you did nothing, if you just sat still and kept your mouth shut, your cause would have a better chance of succeeding than if you get angry and holler about it. You're just likely to get a backlash. 
It's just likely to make it such that when the guy comes, he's got legal authority to give you the shot whether you want it or not. Whereas if you weren't so angry, maybe you'd be able to refuse it and that would be all right. You just push things more the other way. So that's my point about how to, how to react. You always take your best choice. You may not have any good choices. You may not have any good choices. All your choices may be something you don't want to do. But if those are the laws and you live in the country and those are the laws that are, you know, have been passed by a Congress and it's legal, then might as well roll up your shirt sleeve and take your shot or leave the country. Because if you disobey the laws, then you will just be another one of the persons in the detention camp that uh, is for the people who don't obey laws. And it'll probably just get worse. Now, you won't be around to protect your family. You won't be around to help guide the discussion, to help things, you know, to help your grandkids out when they need it. You won't be there because you just slapped the face of authority and now you're in a slammer somewhere or dead. That isn't helpful. You see, none of that violent stuff and none of the fear stuff actually will lead you to a low entropy conclusion. Yes, this is not a pacifist philosophy. There are times to fight back, but you have to look at that fighting and say, when I, if I fight back and how I fight back, is that going to raise entropy or is that going to lower it? Is that going to make things better in the long run or worse in the long run? Okay. Now, if I'm, you know, if, if I'm outgunned and otherwise, if I can't take on the uh, United States, uh, you know, shot force that's going to go around and give everybody an injection, if I can't beat them up and make them run away, if they can beat me up and put me in jail, then me being belligerent is just stupid. It won't end up anywhere positive. It just takes me out of the loop of maybe being helpful to other people. You see, so you look at the whole thing, you do the best you can with your best choice. Now, let's say you have a chance that if you uh, if you push back, they'll leave you alone. Well, then push back. But if you push back, they're just going to push back 10 times harder and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, then don't push back. It's just going to make it worse. So that's the it depends on the situation. You can make it worse. Make it better. Try to be part of the solution. And sometimes it's a little hard as to how to be part of the solution and not be part of the problem. That's not always necessarily a you know, trivial choice to make. But for most parts, anything that has to do with fear puts you in part of the problem, takes you out of the realm of being credible, takes you out of the realm of being convincing, frightens a lot of people. Those people will get excited and jump up and down and rant and rave as well. And you're all written off as a bunch of lunatics that are all angry. And therefore, you can't believe a word you said because you're speaking in anger. And we know angry people don't worry about the truth. Angry people just voicing their opinions. So that's that's my viewpoint on it. You have to consider your options. What are your options actually going to do in the big picture? Can you make something better by resistance? Can you just make it worse? Or is it neutral? So maybe it doesn't matter what you do. So if somebody knocked on my door and I thought that they had the authority to do that, to come in and give me an inoculation, then 
because I live here. It's my country, my laws, whether I like them or not. I have to live with them. I can try to change them, try to prevent them from happening, and do the best I can for that, both by, you know, signing documents and, and petitions and calling senators and putting my money on the line to pay for people that that are more eloquent than I am to do those sorts of things and advertisement. I can do all of that. But if I lose, I have to deal with who wins. And I deal with them as gracefully as I can. And everything doesn't get better if it becomes an armed armed conflict. That usually makes everything worse. I don't know if I'd answered all your questions or not, but yes, there are problems and no doubt there are conspiracies and there's lots of things we will, we will run into in our life that we really don't like that aren't fair, that aren't reasonable, but we'll have to do them anyway, because if that's the law, then it's either that or you're breaking the law, which then takes you out of the space where you can be helpful. So at least that's the way I see it. I think the people who are trying to push back intelligently are trying to do it through litigation, to, in taking Big Pharma to, to the courts. I think they're the intelligent people. Yes, that's the kind of thing that can be done. But the ranting and raving, mostly of the people that, that uh, uh, were there on the Internet, uh, kind of upset by the comments I made and so on, you know, they were mostly angry. They were people who yeah. were upset and angry and upset and angry just doesn't help. It takes you out of the space of being credible. So it's, it's just not helpful. And they make, they want to make other people angry. They'd like to get everybody in the country angry, but that that's not necessarily what helps get everybody in the country to be smart and to call all of them, call up their senators and congressmen and whatever. If that happened, you know, then laws would change. Because those guys want to get reelected. But that's not what they're asking us to do. You know, they're, they want us to be angry because they find power in anger. You can manipulate people who are angry, but it's not good in the long run. Makes yeah. you feel better I, I, in the short run. I found, uh, I found, I found my ego being uh, triggered because I was saying, you can't say that to Tom. He's, he's saying something <laughs> sensible. <laughs> Yeah. So they're just angry people and they're venting their anger. And unfortunately, that makes them, in my mind, part of the problem, not part of the solution. Now, if they were coming on and very soberly trying to make their points, then that makes them part of the solution. It gives other people something to think about. But they get written off otherwise. Just the wrong method. Yeah. Well, thank you for your questions. Uh, they were great questions. And thank you, Tom. The, the answers were, were fantastic. Thank, thank you, everyone, for contributing. We hope to see you again next time.